And then like uh, what the chair of the Fed said, Janet Yellen at the time, now she's the treasury minister, but mm. she said uh, things that when inflation started, oh, this is a uh, transitory, this is temporary. Well, it wasn't. They failed to see the future properly and they didn't raise interest rate early enough. The underlying causes, the US launched extremely misguided stimulus packages, totally focused on consumption. Net investment in the US actually fell during the three years of these stimuluses. That is, there was no increase again in the supply. And you got in a huge inflationary wave going through the US and the whole world economy, which led to the interest rate rises, which then led to these bank collapses. Very likely, the more dangerous uh, uh, pitch they're going to step in is really stagflation. So when the economy stagnates and inflation is uh, remaining unchecked, that is really the, a very typical sign of a financial crisis and even economic crisis. Now the recession is already at the doorstep. The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Hello and welcome to The Chat Lounge. I'm Tuyin. Today we're talking about the bank failures in the United States. Joining our discussion are John Ross, Senior Fellow at Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies, Beijing-based Renmin University of China. Ms. Ross was formerly Director of Economic and Business Policy for the Mayor of London and a consultant to FTSE 100 companies. Dr. Liu Baocheng, Director of the Center for International Business Ethics, University of International Business and Economics in Beijing, and Professor David Feldman, School of Banking and Finance, University of New South Wales, Sydney, Australia. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. So, we've seen the collapse of three U.S. banks, namely uh, Silvergate Bank, Silicon Valley Bank, or SVB, and Signature Bank in less than a week. David, it's the first time uh, for you to be on the show. I'd like to start with you. How common is that, three bank failures within one week? Well, it's not common, obviously, but um, unlike in other cases, what we see here is a very simple scenario and actually expected, and expected in the sense that the events, the financial events are expected, the behavior of the bank that did not control properly for these events, did not even have a risk manager, uh, are not expected. The behavior of the San Francisco Fed that is supposed to monitor the banks, also not expected. So one can think about these two entities as mismanagement from the bank, inappropriate supervision from the Fed. Mm. Then can you um, help us understand how these banks go to uh, this point and why did their collapses come within you know, days of each other in, in early March, almost at the same time? That's very simple. There was a long period of uh, zero interest rate, too long, uh, too long in terms of uh, the Fed, the American Fed, consequently, um, and unlike uh, what the chair of the Fed said, Janet Yellen at the time, now she's the treasury minister, but mm. she said uh, things that when inflation started, oh, this is a uh, transitory, this is temporary. Well, it wasn't. So um, they failed to see the future properly and they didn't raise interest rate early enough. 
I'm not saying it's a criticism. I'm saying it, you know, macro is a, is not the accurate, not as accurate as micro. But that's what happened, you know. Now everybody wished they would raise interest rate earlier, but then they raised the interest rate and very, very aggressively, probably unprecedentedly aggressively, half a percent and half a percent and half a percent in, in sequence. That cause that's very simple. If if interest rates are high, prices of bonds are low. And I'll give you an example. At um, SVB invested the short-term deposit in 10 years treasury bonds. Yeah. So if you put the dollar in 10-year treasury bond for 10 years, it's worth a dollar when interest rates are zero. But if interest rates are 7%, do you want to guess? Think for a moment what would be the price of the bond. It's 50%. So from zero to 7% in 10 years, the value of their holdings went to 50 to 50%. And, and accordingly, if it, if it was zero to seven, it's 50%. So the price of a 10-year bond is very sensitive to changes in interest rate. And they had short deposits, short deposits, long assets, that's called duration, mismatch duration. It's not essential in banking. They didn't manage it properly. Interest rate rise, and then they didn't have money for depositors to cover the deposit. It so there's no no magic here and no answer, no, no puzzles. There could be other things. Other things is maybe that we don't know. But from what I read in the media, this is a simple scenario that happened and happened for other banks as well. Now, how it can be managed? Well, if somebody with big pocket buys the bank and can wait long enough until the prices of the bond, until the bond uh, redeem themselves, um, or until the interest rate go down, everything will be okay. So it's not like somebody um, stole the money and ran. It, it's a matter of currently lack of liquidity because of uh, um, the decline in their assets value, where the assets are very secure assets, United States Treasury, and they will come back. So, David, you tend to attribute this to inappropriate um, bank management or to the, the fault of the local regulator, as well as the high rising interest rates. But um, some SVB employees seem to have contributed the failure to CEO Greg Becker's candidness to publicly acknowledge you know, the, the extent of the bank's financial troubles before privately lining up the necessary financial support to to ride out the storm. And um, that set the stage for the panic uh, that ensued as customers scrambled to pull their money or on a you know bank run. So, John, what's your take on this? Do you think, um, you know, probably Greg Becker, if he based out the, the announcements of the, the two pieces of bad news for one or two weeks, things would change? No, I, I think I would somewhat disagree with your last guess with respect. I think the thing, whole thing is much more serious because it's been possible to see it come in for some time. I mean, I've been writing articles for over a year explaining that the US stimulus packages were bound to lead to a big crisis in the US economy. Mm. This became very clear about July last year in a, a not mainly for example, in the structure underlying things, but in the markets. It's slightly technical, but it's such an important technical thing it's worth non-economists paying attention to. Normally in market, because this is an event which only occurs four times in the last 50 years, um, normally 
long-term interest rates are higher than short-term interest rates because you take more risk by lending for a longer term. But very occasionally, let's say only four times in the last 50 years, you have what's called an inversion of the yield curve. Uh, that means that short-term interest rates become higher than long-term interest rates. And this is one of the most infallible indicators that something very bad is about to happen in the economy. In the, the last three times, the first time it happened in that last half century was 1989, it was followed by recession in 1990 in the US. In, it was happened in 2000 and it was accompanied by the dot-com crash uh, and a big slowdown in the US economy. Most seriously of all, it happened in 2006 and was followed by the subprime crisis in the United States and the international uh, financial crisis and the deep recession. And the, the yield curve in the US inverted in July last year and it's continued to get worse up until the 8th of March. So in addition to structural features of the US economy, which I could go into, but I've been right, writing about from a macroeconomic point of view, the financial markets were clearly saying something very bad is going to happen. It's not possible to predict exactly what's going to happen. It happens in the form of bank collapses, but it was perfectly possible to see this. And it's therefore not due to something which is caused by something like somebody mistiming an announcement or something. It was possible to know that something very bad was going to happen because the US launched completely um, crazy stimulus packages, which had huge uh, increases in consumption, no increases in investment. Uh, and if you have a situation in which you have a very big increase in demand, that's consumption, you have no increase in supply, you're going to get high inflation. That you only have to study econ economics for a week to know that. So this is not due to some peripheral things or statements by individuals. This is a foreseeable and foreseen. Mm. Uh, it's not been wise after the event. It was per it was perfectly possible. And people were writing about it, including myself. This is a big event and it shows big problems in the US economy. Mm. But at least you, you agree with uh, David that the risks are out there for a long time, have been accumulating, right? Yes, they've been, they've been accumulating. The, te the technical things which David explains is exactly, exactly right. What, what happened was, if you take SVB, well, you, it was funny, you had a crisis simultaneous in the so-called the so safest assets and the riskiest assets. Uh, the safest assets were US Treasury bonds, um, which are because they, they're guaranteed they will pay out. There's no risk that they won't pay. But what is not guaranteed is what their price will be at any point in time. Mm. And in a bond, it's the price moves in exactly the opposite direction to the interest rate yield. So if the interest rate yield goes up, it means the price is going down. So SVB was sitting in a lot of bonds, which the US government will pay out on them in the end, but their price was falling all the time. And they got to a point in which the assets of the bank were less than the liabilities of the bank. And it's valued the market capitalization of the bank went from $6 billion to zero in a week, which shows you how drastic that was. The other, uh, in sovereign banks, it was slightly different. It was that they were involved with cryptocurrencies, which are the riskiest, but they were also hit by the interest rate rises. Mm -hmm. But the underlying causes, the US launched extremely misguided uh, stimulus packages, totally focused on consumption, Net investment in the U.S. actually fell during the three years of the stimulus of these these stimuluses. That is, there was no increase going into the supply, and you got a, a huge inflationary wave going through the U.S. and the whole world economy, which led to the interest rate rises, which then led to these to 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 the bank collapses. So, the what is happening about the the structures, the balance sheets, is a technical expression of what's happening. That's what's happening. But behind this is very powerful and very misguided policies by the U.S. government. It has duly happened. Naturally, I'm not claiming you could predict the exact form the crisis would take break out because you never can. But that one was coming was perfectly foreseeable.
Mm. And Bao Chung, do you have any a different interpretation of this, um, especially when it comes to the causes leading to the failures? Now, here's, here's the simple logic. Mm. It is a bank run. And the bank run is uh, caused by uh, liquidity crunch. And the liquidity crunch was caused by the uh, surprise attack of uh, the federal interest hike. And then the implication is that, okay, the depositors are spooked. So they uh, migrate the money uh, from the this uh, already banks in tough situation to uh, bigger banks like uh, uh, JP Morgan Chase or Citigroup, etc. And that really exacerbated the entire problem. Uh, these banks are highly related with uh, high-flying uh, innovation sectors. And uh, it is the United States uh, that has a shared spirit to support uh, innovation into the uncharted frontier. But the problem is that uh, they painted too rosy a picture for those innovation part, uh, either for the startups or for cryptocurrency. And so the risk is uh, uh, definitely higher than uh, regular or traditional the uh, banking services. So that's the, uh, the problem. I do agree with David that, uh, you know, the lack of regulation and also the other thing is I need to add is that uh, those startup companies, they mm -hmm. feel that they have abundant of uh, liquidity support and they, uh, they spent money like water. And that also caused the strain on the bank uh, liquidity and also the risk management uh, responses. So in this way, the way out, one is that, okay, you know, someone else is going to uh, substitute them or take them over to fill the holes. Or, you know, they, they simply declared insolvency or, you know, the, uh, uh, the Fed or FDIC uh, will be able to streamline this issue. It seems that uh, right now the decision is very clear that uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, government and also the banking regulators are there to provide the cushion. Uh, so that uh, the depositors are given a safe landing ground and so that uh, the bank run can be further uh, mitigated. And mm -hmm. so I think that's the, this is really the right approach. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is going to uh, impact many of the other banking industries and also impact on those uh, borrowers and how they're going to uh, reboot their business, how they're going to try to change their business model. And that's uh, something that we are able to predict. Mm. Before we continue, uh, the FDIC is uh, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. It's a, a federal agency insuring deposits in U.S. banks and thrifts in the event of bank failures. So, but when you say uh, get someone else to substitute the dumb, this dumb, are you talking about the crypto-friendly uh, banks or? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So some would simply say, okay. Uh, they can raise funds uh, from uh, the private sector uh, who are there to uh, continue to see hope and uh, bring cash to fill to fill the shoes, and then they can really survive. Because you know, as our guest says, that uh, there's not really uh, substantial mismanagement or a scandal. Uh, so therefore, it is just li liquidity crunch because much of the money is really tied up in the T bills. And which is really a safe return, but uh, right now with the interest hike, and that doesn't really pay off. And so to deal with this issue, the quickest way is to invite more of the strategic investors or venture capitalists to join in. And 
uh, otherwise, you know, they have to lie flat uh, mm. without the government support. Yeah, we've seen uh, customers with their money flocking to, I think it's Bank of America, right? People are saying Bank of America is the biggest winner of this uh, whole well, thing. Well, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, right. and the Citigroup, the all large banks because they, they are too big to fail. So, uh, do, do you so think that's the really solution if those banks continue with similar behaviors? Well, I don't think so because, you know, these banks, they are highly risk aggressive and particularly after they learned the lesson from the uh, 2008 financial crisis. And the regulators are also having a very tough eye over their performance. So, uh, therefore, they are uh, more trustworthy. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, in terms of the business operation, you see that uh, these uh, troubled three banks, they have a tendency to fund more of the risky borrowers, and they also uh, give more credit lines uh, to uh, to those startups, because startups, they may really hit on a jackpot, uh, jackpot and then suddenly become very rich and the important client, or they can easily up, you know, evaporate after they burn a big hole in the, in the uh, money pocket. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Let's go back a little bit to the, you know, causes of this whole thing. It seems all of you have mentioned this um, interest rate hikes by the Federal Reserves. So to David, do you think the the board members of the uh, Federal Reserves, including, you know, Chairman Jerome Powell, were not aware of the risks when they, you know, if they were, well, why, I mean, why have they been so obsessed with interest rate hikes? Well, it's because there is a big, big, big monster looming. And this monster's name starts with an I. And the second letter is N, inflation. So they actually forced to do it. And money was being printed, uh, poured yes. into the economy. And they did not increase interest rate in time. So by the time they realized they missed much of the of the time of the proper timing they became very very aggressive and now they are in a huge 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 dilemma yeah what should we do they definitely need to continue raise interest rate to curb the inflation which is still far too high but maybe now they will pause a little because of not trying to reduce further the value of banks' asset. So I would not be surprised if they'll pause for a moment with increasing and and then keep raising. But again, this is not a precise science. I think three years ago, you know, the the whole world was worried about deflation because uh, both the U.S. and the Europeans, they they all wanted to achieve the target of uh, 2% inflation uh, in order to expand the economy. And suddenly, you know, the uh, uh, the COVID-19 really disturbed the entire table. So now they, you know, when they found that uh, all the stimulus packages, you know, of course, they are political, uh, politically motivated than really necessary for for a big portion of it. So suddenly they flood the market and found that uh, they are unable to check on the high rise of the inflation. So the, you know, the, the, the feds are really looking towards the bigger picture than the regional bank operation. So they, they are really out of their consideration when they raise the interest. So, uh, you know, these banks are somewhat, uh, at least on this dimension, they are victimized by the, uh, the, uh, such a surprise attack. So that's, this is really the issue. Uh, Bajun, do you, do you think the Fed would pause its interest rate hikes as uh, David just said? No, I think, uh, 
John really brought up a very interesting issue is that uh, it is it is really the supply side that creates such a inflation uh, because right now investment is not really boosted by high level of liquidity is and also many uh, culturally many people are really spoiled and they, they are having a higher sense of entitlement to the uh, stimulus and to the subsidiaries over the government uh, federal and even state government so why should I work hard so this uh, and the uh, the supply is not really there to match the large liquidity powered into circulation instead of uh, investment. Therefore, uh, merely by tinkering with the interest rate, it doesn't really solve the problem. Mm -hmm. So the, the key issue lies how they can really boost investment and more productivity and also how they lift more of the protection of the policy against the imports so that people can really have a, uh, the, the right type of access uh, with affordability to those uh, uh, goods. That's really uh, the ultimate solution. Yes, but... Um, if, if I could yeah, just, just add some numbers on sure. that, just to show the scale of it. I mean, if you take the three years of the pandemic, US consumption rose by 3.7 trillion. That's 3,790 billion to be precise. But actual net investment in the United States actually fell by 93 billion. Well, let's let's call it didn't go up at all because that's that's a marginal case. So mm. you, you had a gigantic consumer based stimulus with no increase in investment, no increase in supply. And it, in that in, inflation is absolutely inevitable under those circumstances. And they're trying to hide it by talking about Ukraine war. But the timeline shows you that the global inflation is not due to the Ukraine war. If If you go back to May 2020, inflation in the US was 0.1%. It reached 7.5% in January um, 2022. That's um, January significant because it's before the Ukraine war. So more than 80% of the inflation already occurred before the Ukraine war started. So it was the policies which were adopted by the US, the, the, this huge consumer side stimulus program with no increase in supply that let rip the inflation in the US. And then, then as David said, they, a big monster. Inflation was bearing down upon them. They raised the interest rates very high because they was they're rightly scared of this monster. It's not a not a you know it's not wrong to be scared of inflation. That's the most destabilizing thing you can have. Um, and this caused the interest rates, and then everything else followed technically out of that. But we go back to the, the big mistakes that were made in U.S. economic policy. So you're saying interest rate hikes is the only way they can choose at this moment. Well, it's or the they, only ones in the US willing system. to choose. It's the only ones they can choose. I mean, you can have other things. You can have administered price controls and all sorts of things, which instantly create their own distortions. I'm not particularly advocating them. But given the setup, given the setup in the US, they don't want to do that. Yeah, interest rates is almost inevitable. I think that they will be. I don't know whether they'll slightly, they'll slow down immediately or not. But they're going to be more cautious about putting interest rates up, and that means that the inflation is going to become embedded in the system. We're going into a cycle whereby inflation is probably not going to go down to what the level it was previously. And that has lots of consequences on interest rates. So whatever is the very short term effect. So, yeah, so the interest rate is really a, a convenient vehicle within the full control of the yeah. Fed. So they just tinker it all along, but uh, uh, they are not really there to solve the real uh, fundamental issues in the uh, function of the economy. So that's uh, a very sad issue. But, uh, you know, to uh, wrap up with your previous question, you know, what, are they going to have a pause on the interest hike? Mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, they are already pushing uh, the envelope, you know, by such a sort of rise. So because it's going to hurt the economy and it's going to discourage further investment and further borrowing. 
And uh, then uh, employment will also become a, a big question in that regard. So, uh, you know, the very likely the more dangerous uh, uh, pitch they're going to step in is really stagflation. So, uh, you know, when the economy stagnates and inflation is uh, remaining unchecked. So we are on track to toward a financial crisis. Yes, that that is really the uh, a very typical sign of a financial crisis and even economic crisis. Now the recession is already at the doorstep. David, do you think that things would get that bad? Let me make some comments. Yes. Sure. Um, first of all, it is indeed true that in the past inverted yield curves were followed by crises. But I'm a theorist. I'm a theoretician. But we don't understand why. This is empirically true. But we don't know why. So if we don't know why, as a theorist, I would say not everyone, every inversion is inevitable to bring to a crisis. It it has been empirically, and it's a very interesting question. But for me, it's still an open question. The other point I want to reiterate that with all this situation, there was huge mismanagement by the banks or by the. Silicon Valley Bank, at least, banks wants to match the horizon of liabilities and assets. That's a hedge. If it's not match, you are exposed to huge risk. That's banking 101. And they mismatched it totally, totally. There was bad risk management. And they didn't even have a risk manager officer there. And the San Francisco Fed, I'm not for big regulation, not at all. But why do we have the Fed? Why do we pay them salary? Duration is the most obvious thing when you look at banks' asset and liability. So they fell asleep on the watch. And when you talk about triggering, I again agree with the panel speakers that this is kind of when you have such a mismatch between assets and liability, it's inev- inevitable. But why did it happen on that time, on that day? Well, I understand that the executive sold the bank stocks. We're downloading millions of the bank stocks, a group of them. So if somebody really watched it and somebody said, why are they doing it and immediately saw it, here you have a bankrupt. Yeah, uh, David, you're focusing on this mismanagement or bad risk management. The question I want to ask, who indulged their behavior? It's like uh, 2008 deja vu all over again. So why can those bankers repeat uh, what their predecessors did, you know, years ago or decades ago? Look, the, the, the sources of the problem in 2008 were different. Here, from what I know, information I know, is the decline of bond values given the uh, rise of interest rate. Now, the banks, because of my panel colleagues described, there was no money assets for the bank to invest in. So they went to treasuries. So they are very, very, on the one hand, they have safe assets. On the other hand, they are very sensitive to the, the changes at interest rate. So I am more optimistic since the government moved and it's very problematic for the government to move with bailout because maybe it solved problems in the short run, but it creates problems in the long run. Because then you mentioned the word moral hazard. Moral hazard means that I can take, uh, uh, because I have a contract that you bail me out, I can take the risks unjudiciously and uh, enjoy the upside, but not the downside. Mm -hmm. So, um, Overall, it's a very 
it's a big trade-off, but I'm not that worried about a total failure now. Uh, people are moving very fast to bail out, so the damage will be maybe in the long run, but still it can be contagious. What they did now with um, with um, Credit Suisse, again, pa- we're able to temporarily pacify the market. We'll see. So, uh, David, as a theorist, has given his answers, but uh, John, as a uh, the former director of economic and business policy for, for the mayor of London and a consultant to 5,100 companies. What's your take here? Well, I, I think that the reason for the, inver- the inversion of the yield curve, or what, what that means is just to remind people and not necessarily economists, it means where the peculiar situation where short-term interest rates become higher than long-term interest rates is easily explained. Why the short-term interest rates went up is easy to understand because the Federal Reserve is sharply raising its interest rates. Therefore, the, the, the interest rate on most short-term instruments in the United States went up sharply. The puzzle is why, the question that has to be explained is why did the long-term interest rates not go up in parallel? And the explanation, the only explanation for that is because there was a, a low demand for long-term borrowing. It means that the investment is taking place in the economy because that's really what drives the long-term interest rates. The short-term interest rates can be controlled by the Fed, but the long-term interest rate can't be. They're controlled by the balance between supply and demand for capital in the economy. The, the economy was not didn't want to invest much. That's where the macroeconomic data that I refer to comes in, which you could follow, and I was following even before the market began sharp. The, the level of capital creation in the United States is extremely low. And its level, its investment levels have been falling for uh, 50 years. Therefore, there's, there's not a strong demand for long-term capital. So therefore, the, the puzzle in the inverted yield curve is not why the short-term went up. It's why the long-term stayed down, right? Okay. I, what I would agree with in this case, one thing with David is I, I don't expect that this will have as catastrophic results as in 2008. One could be wrong. It's early days. But the, the thing which was different in 2008 was that there were enormous international imbalances as well. The US had been borrowing almost 6% of GDP a year. That is balance of payments deficit was almost 6% a year. And therefore there was a huge 6% of GDP a year. There was a huge international imbalance. One of the effects of the 2008 crisis was that it it was impossible for the US to borrow so much. And the balance of payments deficits now fall into about 3% of GDP. So while there's a bad situation in, or, or not bad, there's real problems domestic in the US economy, I don't think it's the same international imbalances. That's why I would anticipate that while this is definitely an unpleasant effect, and Goldman Sachs is right and quite rightly that this will slow down the US economy further, I wouldn't expect the effects to be as drastic in 2008. I, I could be wrong, but that, if you know, you put a gun against my head and say, give you, give a decision. If I was if you, if you put it, I was if I was drawing up London, helping draw up London's budget, which is what I used to be my activity. My estimate would be that this will have an unpleasant consequences, slow down the economy, but it won't be as bad as 2008, although the risk is there. But it seems it doesn't need any international, you know, synergy or to get things to a bad situation. Because don't you think um, Americas can single-handedly make things bad? Because like uh, David just mentioned, Credit Suisse has already been affected, right? And this whole thing can be contagious. Well, yes, certainly. Oh, um, there will be contagion. There will be negative effects. I mean, the, the U.S. economy will be slowed by this. The European economy will be slowed by this. But what I mean is 2008, it took three years 
for the US GDP to recover to its pre thousand approximately three years to its pre 2008 level. That was a very serious recession. I wouldn't expect it that to be so prolonged and so deep. Ditto within Europe with the effects of the international financial crisis. I don't mean by that it's going to have no effects. It won't. It will slow the real economy. Mm. Whether we'll have a recession or slow growth, that's not totally clear. But that's the difference. Into it's, but it's just a question of gradation. It's it's bad. It's not quite as bad as two thousand, or it's not as bad as two thousand eight. Would be my judgment at the present stage of the situation. But but it has introduced a risk of things being worse. Of course, the chat lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. To Bao Zheng, you've mentioned how imprudent those、uh, tech banks or those tech firms have been with spending their money. So, what do the bank failures mean for you know tech startups,、uh, cryptocurrency startups in particular, and、uh, also investors' confidence、um, in similar banks and, and depositors' trust in, in such banks? Well, clearly the failure is、uh, a warning、uh, to those uh, uh, risk borrowers, and、mm. uh, the uh, merely relying on continuous flow of big chunk of money from these banks is risky to themselves.、Right. So,、uh, therefore, they have to adjust their business model. They may reboot the ways as how they can really spend the money.、Uh, actually, this is really a, a food chain, I should say. You know, it, when、uh, the risk management is very much in the lacking for those banks, and then there is also,、uh, you know, lack of uh, uh, risk management for those、uh, startup companies in particular. And so they just, you know, gave those investors a very colorful picture. You know, how much of the windfall money they can earn if the、uh, startup can really succeed, and uh, uh, then they typically have a very lavish corporate lifestyle. Uh, so that they can really、uh, have a good image to attract investors. So this way, you know, when the bank crunch is there, they may have to.、Uh, one is that、uh, if they are able to、uh, tighten their belt and survive, that is already good enough. The other is that they may have to sell their business, or they may have to invite more other、uh, strategic investors or venture capitalists so, to to fill the、uh, to fill the hole. So this is really、uh, also a, a warning sign towards those、uh, investors behind it, because、uh, some of the startups may not really generate the right result, may not really give you a, a huge profit in a in a short run. That is,、uh, you know, counting on the support of a continuous、uh, money flow from、uh, those banks, and then you know, regulators will also have to step in and. Definitely, they learn a lesson. They're going to tighten the regulation. I'm not really,、uh, you know, in favor of tightened regulation, but definitely regulators, the tightened control、uh, and surveillance over these banks will also add cost.、Uh, you know, it's going to provide more of the assurance and safety, but it,、uh, in the meantime, it also add the cost for those banks to do business, and then they will be hesitant to lend to those、uh, risk borrowers, which may really have a breakthrough. So this is going to have a huge implications. As for the global contingent, yes, because money has no border、yeah. and they flow around, and also many、uh, of those private investors, either with a bank or with the startup companies, they are really global. So this is going to have a, a long-term contingent、uh, across the globe. Yeah, Credit Suisse already had some,、um, you know, insurance from uh, uh, central bank, right? Yes, all all those banks、uh, they have a sort of insurance, and you know FDIC is、uh, a typical example. But、uh, that's something that is there to、uh, actually 
they're not really to to help the bank uh, eventually, but ra rather to uh, really give confidence to those depositors so that they won't really have a domino effect on the entire banking industry. So this is really the last result, and uh, this is not really something that can, they can easily activate on it. Otherwise, uh, they will be close to the doom step. Then, uh, David, how big a burden do you expect bank failures in the States may convey to the banking system of other countries? Would um, that be a chain reaction there? Credit Suisse, I think, is $700 billion. So yeah. a crisis for Credit Suisse, if, if it was not mitigated, could have had serious ripple effects. Um, Silicon Valley Bank had also some ripple effects, but I think that because, or at least as we know it, the cause is clear, uh, there it shouldn't be a, a major crisis, unless there is some things will be discovered that we don't know of. But otherwise, I'm, uh, I'm not too worried. What about you, John? Yeah, no, but... Yeah, the things are relative. As, as, as I tend to say, this is bad news. Uh, the world economy was not looking very good for this year. Everybody knew that the United States and Europe were going to slow down. But people know the, the good thing is that China's going to speed up. And therefore, the, and you're going to have a driving force in the global economy, which is basically a combination chiefly of China and the global South countries, because some other countries are doing quite well. The Southeast Asia is doing rather well, low inflation, high growth. India's got somewhat higher inflation, but it's still growing quite strongly. And you're going to have a balance in China's account of about 36% of world growth uh, during the pandemic. So you were going to have a less impact or you're going to have a negative impact, less, less positive growth coming from the United States and Europe, more bigger contribution come from China and the global south. Well, the situation in the United States and Europe has just got worse. It's less good than it was than it looked a week, a week ago, and the economy is slowing down. Again, as I said, I, I am not expecting a very deep international recession like after 2008. I expect mm. more a slowdown, certainly recession in some countries, not just not the type of scale of 2008. That would be my judgment at the mm. present time. Right. But it's, it's, it's not good news. There's no doubt about it. I think also there is also a controversy over uh, the relationship between the government and regulators versus the banks in this uh, dimension. Because, uh, you know, the joint statement between the Treasury Department, FDIC and the Fed, and then also the assurance of uh, the White House does give, you know, the uh, depositors uh, more of the confidence and stop uh, and temporarily stop the bank run. And. But uh, the, the issue is that, uh, you know, the if uh, there is a continuous reliance and also there is going to be a massive spread of this type of uh, practice and the messages and taxpayers will uh, uh, will be unhappy because you know, it is really the cost of the federal government, uh, you know, to, to be able to compensate uh, the losses caused by bad management, at least, you know, mm -hmm. the risk management, even if they are not really, uh, you know, deliberate. Uh, scandals that at least you know a bis you know banking is a business after all. If they really mess up, uh, you know who is there to pay the bill? It's not really the public, which is is there to support the government. Uh, therefore, they can't really be able to take, if not really criminal, but also you know the uh, financial liabilities. So I think you know right now the type of uh, corporate uh, type of management and where you know those people can really rely on the shell of the company to cover their own, the responsibility 
so this is something that can really stir a new debate uh, in the relationship between government uh, versus banking industry and also the taxpayers, how they really see this situation. Bao Zhong just mentioned uh, there will be tightened regulations, but and David, you you are saying that the behaviors of those um, bankers are not properly regulated. So, how would you expect the U.S. government, you know, to tighten the regulations? We've seen okay. President President Biden already promised that, right? To, to start with, in my opinion, the bankers misbehaved. They neglected their duties in the sense of not matching the duration. They neglected the duties in terms of not even recruiting and hiring a risk manager. Mm. At the same time, both from Silicon Valley Bank and the Signature Bank, both of them were putting movies all over the webs about EDI issues and ESG issues, which means hiring diversity was overcoming hiring the merit. And while they were celebrating and partying, even the day before the failure and advertising it, the bank was failing. So what I would like to see, I would like to see the the market competition drives this management to better professional behavior to start with. And I have to admit, and I, I hate to see the regulator now taking steps to limit, to constrain the free market. But definitely the free market here didn't work well enough because of the phenomena I described. And there is a danger that the regulator will step in and take too much control. Um, Depends on the regime. The regime now is the Democrats, which prefer higher control than the conservatives prefer lesser control. And there is continuous um, debate between them. But now it, it, I see it as a risk, and I'll watch for it. To what extent we are not uh, over-controlling now. The, the San Francisco Fed simply uh, fell asleep on the watch, and the bankers fell asleep on the watch. But that doesn't mean that you need more regulation. You need to implement your job properly. John, you said you, you don't expect a deep recession, and, uh, and the crisis might not be of the same scale as... Um, 2008. So do you think Americans can have confidence uh, that the banking system is safe from now on, like uh, what President Biden said? Well, yes, but it's not terribly comforting news. I mean, if you look at the pattern that we're in, how, how should we characterize the overall state of the U.S. economy and the Western economy? I mean, I think it's best characterizations, you could call it the great stagnation if we make a comparison to the Great Depression, what happened in the 30s is the world economy went down very, very severely after 1929. Everybody knows this, of course. A very deep recession. But most of the world recovered very quickly. And by 1939, most countries, the GDP was well above the level of 1929. The US was the exception. And that's that's why it's referred to as depression. So you had a very V-shaped curve. What you've had since 2000, well, actually going on for about for 30 or 40 years, but particularly since 2008, is what you might call an L-shaped curve. That is, the economy went down and it's not, it's not stayed down in the sense of being recession, but the, just the, gro- the growth rate is very, very slow. The average growth rate in the US is around 2%. If you, if you go, go back 30 years, it was over 4%. So therefore, what you have is you have an accumulations of problems and discontent 
because you're not having a short-term recession with recovery. It's just that the population is under constant strain on its living standards. I mean, median earnings, you know, in the United States, the, for the ordinary person, haven't haven't gone up much, you know, for the last 15, 20 years. And that one it has two things. One is it creates the political instability that we have in the U.S. You know, all the goings on with Trump and attacks on Congress and th- this type of thing. And secondly, it has a cumulative negative effect in the U.S. economy. So. You're not going to have a deep recession in my my judgment at the present time, not like 2008. You will have a slowdown. You may have a shallow recession, but life is going to feel bad. And there's no indication that the economy is going to speed up. So that's why I say it's a continuation of what is best described as the stagnation situation within the US. And as, as was said previously, this is particularly unpleasant. It's combined with inflation. If, if we look at it, the inflation that we have in the US today is roughly comparable to the 1980s, a little bit lower. But the growth rate is only half of it what it was in the 1980s. So the, the stagflation situation is worse than it was then. So not a deep recession, but life's not going to feel very good. And uh, next question for all of you. David, you've listed what you would like to happen with the, with the U.S. banking system, with the regulating uh, system. So what are the takeaways from uh, the bank failures this time for, for the rest of the world, especially for China? You know, China's gearing up the opening of its financial sector. Well, the, the mistakes that were done in the United States, the big mistakes were, were very well articulated by my colleagues. And in terms of, first of all, they create, they too much money was uh, created and given without any proper use of the money, meaning not investment, it was for consumption. Mm-hmm. That creates inflation. The inflation was not properly managed and forecasted. And there was some kind, look what happened in Silicon Valley. The clients made a lot of money. All the COVID crisis actually brought a lot of money to the clients of Silicon Valley Bank because all it's high tech and all the high tech bloomed. Everybody was on the internet rather than in the, in the restaurants and in the theater or, or even at work, right? They, they were so... A big celebration. 95% of the depositor had more than a quarter of a million dollars. And, and the government now, is there's a political agenda to bail it out. That's another thing why they don't allow banks to fail for political reasons. And then the management also were pretty much uh, relaxed and did other things rather than carefully manage their banks. So mm. China, I don't think that China should be vulnerable to that. So this type of crisis is... I don't see why it's contagious to China. But uh, Baojiang, some people are worried that one day China might be exposed to such risks. Do you have such concern or your takeaway from this, um, you know, bank failures in the States? I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, one good strategy China can learn in this way uh, is really how to motivate the private sectors, particularly the financial platform, be it funds, be it banks, to support innovation instead of government, you know, pouring money to deal with the large amount of, of uh, uh, innovation. And that's how America could really uh, climb on the uh, upper hill so that they can really have breakthrough. So I think China will have to be uh, rather cautious against the other side. That's the excessive intervention and excessive uh, patriarchal type of operation from the government. And uh, the other, of course, you know, is uh, really the bank structure so that they have the right type of uh, risk uh, management system and also the need to follow more closely 
on how money is also being used by those startups. It's not there to build a lavish lifestyle and they can be more disciplined in dealing with uh, the, the right type of uh, innovation. And third is that there can be more of the concerted efforts through better coordination and build more transparency so that there can be a sort of early detection over certain problems so that people can be uh, more prepared. And even between the, uh, the government, like the Fed, uh, to really to uh, get more informed uh, with uh, those uh, bankers. So that's something that we can really learn both in terms of a success story and also some of the lessons. Mm, John, don't you think if a strict uh, governing system would be good for China's financial sector? Or- well, no, I think the, the regulation thing is not the key. I think China's financial system is inherently safer. This relates to this question of um, what was referred, David, called moral hazard. That means a situation in which if there's a profit, a private individual takes it. And if there's a loss, the the private individual is then bailed out by the state, which is what you've got the Western system. The banks are too, and it's not just my view, Martin Wolf's written, for example, in the Financial Times, excellent articles about this, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. What you have at the present time, and this is the moral hazard of this, is if the state is going to bail you out in the end, well, then that encourages you to go for the highest return uh, investment, which Indeed. is likely to be the riskiest investment. Mm. That's the risk that you have a state guarantee of private intervention in the economy. In China, the dominant banks are state banks. They might appear rather unexciting in terms of their interest rates, etc. But that's I don't think the banks should be exciting. I mean, all in favor of banking conservatism. Right. Um, and that's created by the structure which exists um, in China, of the, of, of the banking system, because it's really dominated by the big state, uh, big state banks. The more immediate thing is China's got to carry out a slightly delicate thing. On the one hand, the consumer sector in China was very badly hit by COVID for obvious reasons. People didn't want to go out, didn't want to travel, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm all in favor of a short-term consumer stimulus in order to do this during 2023. But if for the longer term goals, you know, consumption is not a, not an input into production. Zero percent of the growth of the economy is produced by consumption. Some of the, the economy is consumed. And if China wants to have its target by 2035 of doubling GDP, which is roughly, which is the target it's set, it needs on the one hand a short term consumer stimulus and then it's got to find the longer term conditions to carry out what will be generated by investment, long-term growth in the economy. This is quite delicate in practice, but it's aided by clear thinking. If you have confused ideas, you'll get a big mess, such as we've had in, in the US. Well, last question. Every time when a you know financial crisis emerges, there comes the question on dollar dominance. People are, some people actually are saying that um, we're not far from a US uh, Treasury bond market debacle or the end of the U.S. dollar's global hegemony. But um, given what all of you have just mentioned, there could not be such a severe crisis ahead of us. I'm guessing you don't see it happening, right? Uh, let's start from uh, John. No, I, I don't think so. I think that the the dollar will be continued to be the dominant international currency. Mm-hmm. The, the, the dollar is undermined by two things. One is the unilateral U.S. sanctions against countries. That is going to encourage uh, countries to find ways of, of settling things in other than dollars. And that will ex- maybe it'll increase by 5% of world trade in, maybe 10%. I don't like these u- unilateral US sanctions, which are not internationally recognized. I'm all in favor of this. But I think that the, um, the dollar will continue to be the dominant situation. I don't think there's any risk of the uh, US uh, Treasury bonds defaulting. Mm. The problem of the, it, which we've recently seen was not caused by the threat that the US government wouldn't pay up. 
it was caused by the fact that people got the pricing wrong when the interest rates went up. So I would expect at the edges some reduction in the role of the dollar, but the dollar will remain for the foreseeable future the world dominant currency. And I don't believe that US Treasury bonds are anything other than totally safe in the sense that the US government will pay for them whenever their time becomes due. Mm. And uh, uh, David? I agree. I think that the United States is in a, has been since the last election uh, in decline. The war in Ukraine, which was supposed to collapse the Russian economy, did not collapse the Russian economy. The ruble is stronger. And exactly as John articulated, people find ways to bypass the dollar. They're forced to bypass the dollar. So as long as the United States will insist of uh, buying energy from Venezuela, not producing its own, and, and on and on and on, similar things, the United States will be weakened and the dollar will be weakened. So I don't see a major crisis. I don't see the default of the United States treasuries, as as you suggested, no debacle in the short run. But I see a weakening of the United States. And I wonder if that will induce a, a reversal, a 100%, a 180-degree shift mm-hmm. in the United States policies. And lastly, Bao Chung. I do not see much of the chance for the federal government to default on the bills and uh, the uh, bonds, but uh, it is definitely uh, their uh, U.S. dollars use is uh, uh, getting dwindled in comparison with the previous uh, dominant position. And right now, the strength and also the popularity of the dollar is uh, still dependent on the U.S. economic performance and also U.S. Uh, technological leadership and also the credibility they offer to the rest of the world. So right now, there's not much of the risk we can really see it. On that note, we wrap up today's chat. Many thanks to Dr. Liu Baocheng, Director of the Center for International Business Ethics, University of International Business and Economics in Beijing, Professor David Feltman, School of Banking and Finance, University of New South Wales, Sydney, Australia, and John Ross, Senior Fellow at Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies, Renmin University of China, also former Director of Economic and Business Policy for the Mayor of London and a consultant to FTSE 100 companies, for sharing your insights with us. If you have any comments on the topic or on the show, please feel free to leave a message for us. You can find us on all major podcast platforms. Just search Chat Lounge. I'm Tuyun. Thank you for being with us. Ever wondered what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African? How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China-Africa Talk. Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives, and more. Get on our wavelength every week to find out what's real with China-Africa Talk. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. We'll see you there.